Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeated the, repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thank you, Pat. Uh, let me let me pray, and then we'll uh, we'll look at the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word that you are a speaking God, a God who reveals yourself, has revealed himself through your Son, the Word made flesh, and through your written word. As we continue in our series through Hebrews, Father, we pray that uh, for every one of us, whether here in this building or watching from home, that uh, we will have a a living encounter with you, the living God, through this this, uh, time in your word. We'd be encouraged and strengthened. We'd have our thinking corrected where it needs to be corrected. We would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our intercessor. Amen. In the uh, 1999 uh, film, The Sixth Sense, filmed uh, somewhat iconically in Philadelphia, Bruce Willis plays the lead character, uh, a psychologist who is treating a young boy uh, who is being tormented by visions of the dead. Willis treats his patient with compassion, but understands the visions to be hallucinatory. But in the meantime, Willis is struggling with his own problems, including a growing distance between himself and his wife since he was almost killed by an intruder. Well, as it unfolds, the story makes complete sense to the audience, but it takes on a completely new meaning at the very end. If you've never seen The Sixth Sense, I apologize that I'm about to spoil it for you, but you have had 22 years to see it, so I don't really feel that bad. Because at the end of the film, you discover that Willis himself is dead. He wasn't almost killed by the intruder. He was killed. His estrangement from his wife is not psychological. It's spiritual. She's alive and he's dead. And the plot twist is a complete surprise. But then if you rewatch the film, which I actually did last night, it makes complete sense that he's dead. Because you realize that his wife never looks at him or interacts with him. That no one really talks to him except this young boy. That once you know the ending, you can't help but watch the whole film a second time in light of that ending. Now, On the one hand, the story of Jesus is the exact opposite of the sixth sense. Because when you get to the end of the story of the Gospels, you find that Jesus isn't dead, but he's alive. But here's where the story of Jesus is similar. That once you come to the end, as you then go back through the scriptures, including the Old Testament, you can't help but read them in light of the ending, the good news ending. It's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to our need for him. It's all about this coming savior who is going to be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate king, the ultimate prophet, the one to whom everything in the Old Testament turns out to have been pointing. As we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, we've seen that the preacher is addressing a congregation of people who are starting to act as if the good news of the ending hadn't actually happened. They're tempted to operate not in light of the ending, but as if Jesus had never come, as if we we don't have one who has made the sacrifice for our sins once for all, as if we don't have a high priest who's entered the heavenly place and intercedes for us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The preacher's trying to show them that everything in the Old Testament story 
was only the shadow pointing to the reality which Jesus brings. And so it makes no sense whatsoever to try to tell the story without the reality and, and live in the shadows. As we look at our passage today in chapter 10, we want to see that we can actually do something similar by not only failing to read the earlier story in light of the ending, but also by now not living in light of the ending. We've been shown all that Jesus has done for us, all that he has achieved on our behalf. But the question today is, are we living out of that reality? And more specifically, what does it actually look like to live out of this reality? So here's our sermon in a sentence for today. It is that our growth in faith, hope, and love flows from the access through and advocacy of Jesus. We're going to think about this in three parts today. First of all, the preacher's recap. Secondly, our confidence in access and advocacy. And thirdly, our application of that confidence. Our growth in faith, hope, and love flows from the access through and advocacy of Jesus. So first of all, and very, very briefly, the, the preacher's recap. We're, we're going to jump to verse 19 here and look at just the very first word, which is therefore. Anytime there's a therefore, if I said before, you have to ask what it's there for. And here, I think, the preacher is referring to everything he's actually been saying since the beginning of chapter 7, as he delved there into Jesus' high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. However, an argument could also be made that he, the therefore is actually just referring to what he's been talking about in, in the immediate uh, preceding section, namely chapter 10, 1 to 18, because these 18 verses actually serve as something of a recap of what the preacher has covered since chapter 7. That is to say, in terms of the content, uh, there are, are no particularly new arguments being made in this section. Rather, its basic purpose is for the preacher, as one commentator has put it, to run his homiletical harrow over already plowed ground. That is to sum up this sermon within a sermon that's been running since chapter 7. And as he does so, he, he touches on all the themes that we've seen over recent weeks in these previous chapters. The provisional nature of the old, old covenant and old sacrifices versus the finality, the perfection of the new, the interior transformation that's achieved by the new covenant that the old covenant couldn't do, the once-for-all character of Christ's sacrificial death atoning for our sins. Or to summarize this section in an even, even briefer form, it is basically this, that in Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, I tell you, you are forgiven. Now, if that all seems way too brief, a summary of 18 verses, never fear, because the preacher isn't done, in a sense, quite with his summary. Because after his therefore, in verse 19, we have two mentions of the word since, which further develop the summary as it takes us to our second point, which is our confidence in access and advocacy. Look at verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers, and we could say, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. 
In light of everything that the preacher has covered so far, he tells us that we have two forms of confidence. Firstly, we have a confidence in access. We have confidence to enter the holy of holies, the the holy places of heaven. That is to enter into the very throne room of God, to come into his very presence. I often wonder if we really appreciate what a massive, massive deal this is. Back in the early 1980s, I was a choir boy. I'm sure you can picture that if you choose to. At our home church just outside of Belfast, one of the best memories I have of my brief choir boy career was that in the summer of 1981, uh, we went on a choir boy tour of England, sang in various churches, visited various cathedrals, visited the Houses of Parliament. But the, the highlight I remember at the time was visiting Kensington Palace which was at the time the official residence of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. General public could take uh, tours of certain parts of the palace, but one of the other choir boys had an aunt who was on the staff there, and so she got us access into all sorts of rooms that were off limits to the, the general public. And I remember at the time thinking how important we all felt getting special access to those parts of the palace that others couldn't enter. It's one of the first things I remember telling my parents when we got home, that we'd been given permission to see around the home of Charles and Di. But there's nothing, there's nothing compared to what the preacher's telling us that every Christian has here. Because through Jesus, we have this all-access pass, not just into a building or part of a building, but into the heavenlies. And that's not just access to a place, that's access to a person, to God himself. That you and I have permission to draw near to the God of this universe, to, to the God who has redeemed us, the God who created us, anytime we so choose. But it's actually more than just mere permission, it's a confidence. Why, he says, because the basis of this all-access pass is the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, it's hard not to imagine that the preacher has in the back of his mind the temple curtain that surrounded the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple, which we're told in the gospel as Jesus took his final breath on the cross, split from top to bottom into two. But that's doesn't seem to be the, pr- the preacher's primary focus here when he references the curtain, because rather he states here that he's using the image of the curtain to symbolize Christ's flesh. That at his death on the cross, Jesus used his body to tear this curtain that separates physical death from eternal life. It was what we might call an incarnate curtain that required the shedding of blood and the tearing of flesh. That access to God is not ultimately granted by passing through a curtain, but through the torn, broken, bloody, dead flesh of Jesus. That Jesus secured access for us into God's presence by means of his flesh. But notice there's a shift in the argument of the preacher here, because up to this point he's been emphasizing how, how it's Jesus who has entered the heavenlies to make an offering of his blood that he made through his death on the cross as a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. But look who now gets to go into the heavenlies. It's not just Jesus, it's us. It's 
That's why the preacher referred to Jesus back in chapter 2 as our pioneer. That he's blazed the trail so that others can follow him into the very presence of God. He's the key to this all-access pass we have to God. But this confidence in access is even stronger because it's coupled, we see here, with a second confidence, a confidence in Christ's priestly advocacy. Again, verses 19 to 21, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Do you see what strength he wants to communicate to us here? Jesus is not only the curtain, that is our access, but he's also the priest, our advocate. His torn body and his shed blood provide access to the presence of God the Father. But in that access, we find Jesus there to be our perpetual priestly advocate, our mediator, helping us, strengthening us, interceding for us, meeting our needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that because of what Jesus has done and because of who he is, we have confidence in both access and advocacy. Now, all of this, however, is really, in a sense, the run-up, the basis, the ground for what the preacher really wants to get into in this section, which are three exhortations based on this double-barreled confidence that we have through Jesus. And that brings us to our third point, which is the application of our confidence. The three exhortations are not hard to spot here because they each begin with the words, let us. And together they call us to this faith, hope, and love, one of the New Testament's favorite words, ways to uh, describe the normal Christian life. Actually, I never noticed this until a few weeks ago, but I think if chapter 10, verses 1 to 18 are uh, are something of a recap of what has been said up to that point. This section from 19 to 25, I think, gives a foretaste of what's to come in the rest of the book. Because as you look ahead, and as we'll see in future weeks, chapter 11 is all about faith, chapter 12 majors on hope, and chapter 13 focuses on love. But in this section, as our sermon in a sentence mentioned, the preacher wants us to see that our growth in faith, hope, and love, flows from that access through an advocacy of Jesus. Look with me at the first exhortation, verse 21. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Saying, given this this double confidence in access and advocacy, he says we have this, this assurance of faith, that Jesus' saving work was addressed every dimension of our need before God. So if you were to track the benefits of, 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 to us, of Christ's offering of himself, that the preacher has mentioned through this entire book, we, we'd find things like purification and redemption and a purified, cleansed conscience, and in this chapter, forgiveness and being made right with God and perfection, all of which has secured this unhindered access that we have to God. And all of that means that you and I are always welcome in God's presence, that God will never turn away from you with a frown or with a curt, not now. That no failure that you bring with you into God's presence can bar the doors against you 
Because God's arms are now always open to you through Jesus. As we mentioned before, however great a sinner you are, Christ is a greater Savior. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I wonder if you were to take a quick survey of your life this past week, how much drawing near to God you'd say there's been. Have you made a frequent use of that all-access pass secured by Jesus through his death? Or does it sort of hang on some proverbial lanyard over some door handle for seven days that you pick up when you come to church on a Sunday and you put back when you go home again? You and I can be very quick to grumble about our lives, complain about our circumstances, and yet ignore the vast spiritual resources that we have through Jesus. Part of the reason for us starting the daily prayer project was to help prime the pump in each of our lives for drawing near to God more frequently through the week in worship and prayer. So let's heed this first exhortation to be constantly drawing near to God with full assurance of faith. And the second exhortation comes in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This exhortation really flows quite naturally from the first one, because as we draw near to God, we in turn draw strength to persevere in hope. You may recall that the preacher referred to this Christian hope that we have back in chapter 6. He referred to it as an anchor, sure and steadfast, because he says this hope, this anchor has gone behind the veil. That is, we, we have a future that is absolutely secure because it's kept for us in heaven by Jesus. So we hold fast to our confession of this hope without wavering, that is, with endurance, with perseverance, not because we're confident in ourselves, but as the preacher says here, we're confident in the one who has promised this hope to us, confident because he is utterly faithful to his promises. But I want us to move fairly quickly to the third exhortation in verses 24 to 25 for the remainder of our time. Look at those, at those verses with me. Preacher says, let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And before we think about this exhortation in detail, I want us just to take a step back and consider for a moment the significance of how all three of these exhortations begin in the plural, let us. This, this plural command speaks to a fundamental issue of identity for us as Christians. At one level, all of us individually have to accept the invitation to draw near to God through Jesus at a personal level. But once we do that, we become part of something that is bigger than our individual selves. We become part of a people who are cleansed and washed and rescued by Jesus. That is, we, we become church. That's our new identity. Church is not a responsibility. It's an identity that is ours in Christ. Church is not just something that you do, juggling it amongst all the other things you have in your schedule each week. Church is who we are. It's our identity that is ours in Christ. 
With his repeated let us, I think he's reminding us that the church is an identity. It's an identity that is ours in Christ. Church is what we are. Listen to what the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf says about this. He says, one cannot have a self-enclosed communion with the triune God, a foursome as it were, for the Christian God is not a private deity. Communion with God is at once also communion with others who have entrusted themselves in faith to this very same God. Hence, one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship both with God and with all others who stand in communion with God. That is, the minute that you draw near to God as your heavenly Father, by definition, you cannot escape also calling other Christians your brothers and sisters. The church is an identity that is ours in Christ. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, the preacher in verses 24 to 25 teases out how, how this identity radically shapes how we relate to each other. He says, let us consider how to stir one another to, to love and good deeds, how to encourage one another. He says, let us consider, think but here's the shocker that runs through these verses. Living out our identity as a church means think others, not think me. Think others, not think me. That when you think about your involvement in the life of the church, the motivation's not to be, well, maybe I'll do this because I'll get something out of it for myself. No, the, motiva the motivation out of the confidence that we have because of Jesus' access and advocacy is, I want to spur other people on to love and good deeds. I want to be an encouragement to the people around me. We've already seen in chapter 3 how crucial encouragement is in the Christian life, that without it we're in danger on a daily basis of having our hearts hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So here the preacher is simply repeating what he's already said, this, this call on the life of every single Christian to be an encourager. Listen to this quote I read this week about why each of us need encouragement. The, the person says, discouragement sets in when our hope leaks. We begin to cower before our fear. When this process happens, and it happens often, we need an infusion of hope. And that is what encouragement is, an infusion of hope. I really like that definition. Encouragement is this infusion of hope as the gospel, as it were, moves verbally from one person to another person. So that encouragement helps us when we're struggling with that second exhortation that we just looked at, to hold fast the confession of our hope. We all need infusions of hope. And if you're a Christian, you've been called to be the giver of such infusions of hope. There are people in your life, there are people in this church who could really do with words of encouragement this week. If you don't know, then, then reach out to some of them that you know and just ask. On a wider scale, I've been conscious, very conscious this week of, of the need to offer encouragement to, 
to the Asian and Asian American brothers and sisters in Christ that I know after the atrocity that happened in Georgia this week. You know, sometimes we can be too easily drawn into discussions about whether such killings are racially motivated or not, perhaps because we, we want to be able to fit these kind of things into our pre-existing narratives. But when, I, when I've talked to my Asian American friends, including pastors, I realize that to do so is to tragically miss a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is the fact that these brothers and sisters are seriously hurting right now. One Asian American pastor friend told me this week that the mass shooting was for many a tipping point, that many were already on edge, filled with anxiety over anti-Asian racial prejudices and rhetoric and violence that have been prevalent since at least the beginning of the pandemic, if not before. These brothers and sisters need our prayers. They may even need our repentance, but they definitely need our encouragement. Encouragement that in the context of this passage is an infusion of hope by which we help one another hold more firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. But in order for us to do these things, look at what is sandwiched between the calls to spur one another on to love and good deeds and to encourage one another. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Preacher says that the best way for us to spur one another on, to encourage one another, is to be meeting together. Some of you may recall the, uh, the, what we called the ministry of the pew that we've talked about over recent years or a course that a number of us took a few years ago called Six Steps to Loving Your Church. Both of those gave very practical steps on, on how to have a servant or a worker mindset on a Sunday morning before the service, during the service, after the service, rather than kind of having a consumer mentality towards church. Twelve months ago, by no fault of our own, we were all forced into, into a mode of church that essentially made us consumers watching the service on a screen. Frankly, it's very hard to do ministry of the pew while you're sitting on your couch. It's not impossible, but it's very hard. And because of that, this last year has definitely taken its toll on, on us as a community and on our life and worship as a church family, as well as a toll, I'm guessing, in some of our own personal Christian lives. I read an article this week by Jonathan Lehman. He's a pastor in D.C. The title of his article was this, Not Gathering with the Church Hurts You Spiritually. And Lehman acknowledges that there are legitimate reasons why some have chosen not yet to return to in-person services. But he then writes this. He says, if you can't attend, I want you to be a little frustrated that you can't attend, lest you get comfortable. If you're not frustrated, something's wrong. The Lord has commanded us in Hebrews 10 not to neglect meeting together. An absence from the gathering does affect our spiritual state, even if we have a legitimate reason for not attending, like being sick or quarantined. Jesus designed Christianity and the progress of our discipleship to center around gatherings. The math is therefore simple. Gathering with the church is spiritually good for you. Not physically gathering with the church spiritually hurts you. So here's my humble request to those of you who haven't returned yet. That for your own spiritual sake and for the sake of your church family, 
that if you haven't already done so, make a commitment today as to when you will return. Write it down somewhere. Make it concrete that I will return to in-person services when I get, have my vaccine, that I and my family will return when nursery has resumed. Or per, maybe for some of us, we realize that there's really no good reason preventing us from returning based on how we've been gathering in other contexts in our lives right now. And frankly, we've just been procrastinating. So maybe you just need to write down, I'm going to return next Sunday, or I'm going to return on Easter Sunday. And then commit to it. In other words, don't just say, yeah, we'll be back sometime. Because the danger of that lack of specificity is that sometime often ends up being no time. And your spiritual well-being and our spiritual well-being with you with us is too important to leave it like that. Why is it too important? Because of how the preacher concludes this section again at the end of verse 25, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day that the preacher is mentioning here is the final day of history. It's the day when Jesus will return. The Bible is clear that for those who have rejected Jesus' offer to be the sacrifice for their sins, to be their high priest who has offered his blood for their forgiveness, it will be a day of condemnation, a day of judgment. But for the Christian, it's actually a day that we long for. Look at this verse from the end of Hebrews 9, the previous chapter, 928. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The day is a reminder that the present struggles that we face will not last forever. That on that day, Jesus will consummate the salvation of all who are eagerly waiting for him. How do we know that we're eagerly waiting for him? By the kind of things he's been talking about. By encouraging one another. By keeping going. By keeping spurring one another on. By keeping meeting together. Because no matter how hard life is right now, you and I just need to keep going. Until the day when all the struggles, all the suffering... All the pain will be over. Our ability to keep going flows out of this confidence that we have in our access through and the advocacy of Jesus. And that changes everything. You know, it's said that when the fourth century early church father John Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Then I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I'll take away your treasures. No, but you cannot, for my treasures in heaven and my heart is there. Then I will drive you away from man and you shall have no friend left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. And friends, what was true for Chrysostom is true for each one of us if Jesus is our access and our advocate. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of the riches that we have in Christ, this all-access pass we have into the heavenlies, into your very presence, and for the reminder of the difference that all this makes in our lives in terms of our drawing near to you, our holding fast, our confession of hope, and the motivation and the equipping for the love of one another such that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds and encourage one another. Lord, help us to hear this as a call from you today on our lives and be different as a result, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.